The scripture reading for this morning is from Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We go ahead and, why don't we go ahead and pray? Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, illumine to us the words of the Lord. Show us the wealth of glory that lies beneath the old familiar stories. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we're continuing our series this morning in uh, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, in Galatians, and um, we get a peek in this passage into the heart of Paul for these, his people, uh, to whom he had ministered and among whom he had shared the gospel. Uh, you remember the context, right? I need to go back and give the whole blow by blow, but, but Paul had been there, he had planted a church, he had left, after he left, these Judaizers, these false teachers who were saying to them, you need to obey the entire law of God. You need to be circumcised. You need to observe all the Jewish holy days. And essentially, you need to become Jewish in order to be saved. Faith in Christ is good. It's not enough. You need to add to that works in order to be accepted by God. And it was killing their joy. It was, it was robbing them of their experience of the grace of God for them. Paul's heard of this. He's writing this letter in order to remind them, first and foremost, that he actually, his, his gospel is the one true gospel, and he is God's spokesman, that, that the message he brought them is the message that they need to believe because it is the one gospel. The apostles in Jerusalem had confirmed that. He demonstrated how all of what God had been doing through, uh, through Abraham and the promises that God made to Abraham applied ultimately to Christ and in Christ to them. He's, he's made these great, deep, rich theological arguments to try to persuade them concerning the, the danger of the false teachers and the truth of the gospel. But now his heart really is on display for them. You, you heard it as I read it. You heard a sense of his um, just being perplexed with them, you know, in verse 20. His anxiety for them, he's concerned for them in verse 11. His, his burden as if he were a mother in childbirth, anguishing that Christ would be formed in them. Uh, you heard of his tenderness toward them when he called them brothers, which is a way of saying brothers and sisters, or my little children even. 
His heart is on display here. Why, again, because they were losing their freedom by listening to the false teachers who were telling them that they had to earn their salvation. It's as if they were putting themselves back into the bondage of slavery as those who had been set free, and they were losing all their joy. So he's pleading with them to remember, essentially to remember the gospel. Remember the, the wonder of what it means to be known by God, not just to know God, but to be known and loved by God. He's, he's calling them first and foremost back to just wonder at that glorious truth. He's also calling them to, to realize that the, this isn't just a matter of adopting new religious practices. It's, it's actually, again, returning to slavery to a form of bondage that's, that's killing their joy and killing their gospel culture that they had begun to enjoy as God's people there in Galatia. And he's expressing for them you know, his agonizing burden, like a, like a woman in labor, that Christ be formed in them, that the ultimate point of this freedom that they were enjoying was so that they could be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. What I hope you'll see this morning is that what Paul's heart is for the Galatians is Christ's heart for you. This is God's word. God made sure that we had Galatians preserved for us down to this very day. What Paul is saying to the church in Galatia, Paul's heart for them, his burden for them, that they not turn from the gospel to anything that's not the gospel, that they not lose the freedom that they have in Christ and see their joy killed and their gospel culture destroyed, that they actually continue on in grace, being transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. What Paul's heart is for the church in Galatia is Christ's heart for you. And we need to hear his heart this morning. Because we so easily fall back into those old, old forms of slavery. In our sin, we want to be able to say to God, you owe me. When things don't go right in our lives, you recognize that's an indication. When things don't go right and, and we're angry and bitter about it, you recognize that that's the inverse of thinking that God owes me for doing good things. I'm, good things aren't happening in my life. I'm, I'm experiencing pain and suffering. Therefore, God's not keeping up his end of the bargain because I've worked so hard to be a good moral person. We so easily fall into that. And the moment we do, joy is lost, culture is destroyed, freedom is abandoned for slavery. So there's three things that I hope that we'll hear from this passage this morning. The first that I want us to just meditate on is the, the wonder of being known and loved by God. We're just going to camp out there for a little bit and, and marvel together at the wonder of being known and loved by God. Secondly, we're going to consider the bondage of performance-based relationships, and specifically the bondage of a performance-based relationship with God. And then third and finally, we are going to consider the heart of Christ for your freedom in him. That's where we're headed. First, the wonder of being known and loved by God. What does it mean at the most basic level to be a Christian? Is the Christian someone who goes to church every Sunday? Is a Christian someone who reads their Bible every day? Is a Christian someone who knows right doctrine, who knows things about God? 
Is a Christian even, ultimately, at the most basic level, someone who knows God? Paul would not in any way diminish the importance of any of those things I just mentioned. But please notice what he says in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. At the most basic level, what it means to be a Christian is to be someone who has been known, who has come to be known and loved by God. I add the word loved because even in the idea of that word knowing or known is not an intellectual knowing. It is a, a relational knowing in the same kind of knowing that a, that a husband and wife who are, who are knitted together in marriage, who, who experience the joy of, of loving one another, which is complete transparency and vulnerability within the context of the vows of fidelity and, their, and you know, the till death do us part as long as we both shall live. That kind of love is only a, a hint, a little glimmer of what it means to be in a loving relationship with the God of the universe. Not only does God know you in this way, but you are coming to know God in this way. You see, we, we, we maybe start out, you know, as, as little children. We're, we're learning the Ten Commandments. We're, we're learning the Bible stories. We're hearing about Jesus and all that he's, he's done. And we're learning these things. But when God moves by his spirit such that his word begins to live in us and, and when we go to God in prayer knowing that Jesus himself is interceding for us and, and the spirit of God is interceding for us with the words that we can't find and when we experience that sense of assurance that God brings us by his spirit through his word. When we grow in that experience of the love of Christ that Paul prays for in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, when that happens, as that happens, we're moving from not just knowing about God, but actually knowing God. But that doesn't begin with our effort. Our knowing of God begins with his pursuit of and his knowing of us. And Paul wants to make sure right here at the beginning, it's almost like he, he corrects himself. Like now that you've known God, wait, wait, wait. Now that you've come to be known by God, because that's where it all begins. That is so comforting. There's so much freedom just in knowing that our relationship with God is not based on what we've done. It's based on what he has done. Again, that's why baptism is such a beautiful thing for those of us who observe it, because it's a reminder of the fact that God takes the initiative. God moves toward us in order to know us and love us that we might respond to him and know him and love him in return, last week, uh, Pastor Chris was here. He talked uh, verses four, uh, 1 through 7 of chapter 4 about adoption, the fact that in Christ we're no longer orphans. We're, we're sons and daughters, and what a great privilege that is. Tim Keller uh, you know, gives the example. He, he poses the question, who in the entire kingdom, imagine a king in his kingdom, who in the entire kingdom could walk into the king's bedchamber at 3 in the morning and ask for a glass of water? and not expect to be crushed for it, right? Only the king's children. That's the access that we have to God, to the king of glory, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who, if we were to see him, we would be crushed 
and undone. This God has pursued us, sinful people, unworthy people, people who are actually running as far as we, as fast as we could from him. God came and got a hold of us and said, I'm going to set my love upon you, sending my son. He's come that you might have forgiveness, that I might know you. This is grace. This is the freedom of the gospel that we enjoy. And Paul's burden is that they not and we not turn away from it. There's nothing more freeing than being known and loved by God. And so all the more reason why Paul is burdened that we not turn from it. So let's secondly look at the bondage of performance-based relationships. The bondage of performance-based relationships. Now, Paul in chapter 5, verse 1, is going to come back even more directly to this issue of being set free in Christ, right? For freedom, Christ has set you free. He's going to tackle that again in chapter 5. But here in verses 8 through 10, notice what he says concerning their slipping back into slavery. Let's take a look at verses 8 through 10. Let's read it. Verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now stop there for a second. These were Gentiles. They were coming out of pagan worship. They had pagan idols. They were not gods. You know, these so-called gods were not gods. There's only one true God. They were mere idols. So again, verse 8, by nature are not gods. Verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be much more, once more? So he's making a, a, an example based on a principle of slavery to performance in order to appease the deity. All right, there's, there's the principle. Paul is saying that when you were worshiping these not gods, You were actually enslaved to them because you were basing your relationship with them on performance. There were pagan rituals, there were pagan calendar, you know, days and weeks and months and years that they were observing in order to try to appease the quote-unquote gods, the not-gods, as Paul is saying in verse 8. And they were enslaved in doing so. That performance-based relationship with these not-gods was a form of slavery, And what Paul is saying here is in looking to the law of Moses, as the Judaizers are calling you to do, in order to have right standing with the one true God, the one who is God, you're actually returning to the same kind of slavery. You've got this freedom in Christ through through a gracious relationship with him. You've been adopted into the household of God. God is now Abba, Father. And now by turning to the law of Moses, even though the law of Moses is good, By turning to that as the means through which you are made right with God, you're actually returning to slavery once again. And Paul's like, don't do it. Now, do we do the same thing? Yeah, we do. You know, by God's grace, again, I think I said this two weeks ago, you will never hear me say that you have to obey God in order to be right with God. Obedience is the fruit, not the root of your salvation. And that was the message the Judaizers were giving to the Galatians. You must obey God in order to be right with God. But as I said in the introduction, we, we tend to want to base our relationship with God on our performance. I did my devotional every day this week. Therefore, I should have a good week. 
That's performance-based relationship with God. Or I did my devotional every week and I haven't had a good week. Where are you, God? Performance-based relationship with God. Or I haven't done my devotional in months. It's no wonder that I'm having a lousy week. Performance-based relationship with God. It's not based on grace. It's not based on grace that begins with God's pursuit of you, not your pursuit of Him. It's based on merit. And it brings destruction. It is itself a form of slavery. But it's not just, you know, morality or law-keeping. We can be enslaved to the opinions of other people. Hence the temptation to wear a mask around one another. I can't let you see the real me because if you saw the real me, you'd want nothing to do with me. God sees you better than you see yourself. And he has rescued you. He has redeemed you. He wants you. If the God of the universe wants you, then the mask can come off around other people. And yet we find ourselves enslaved to the opinions of other people. Paul had to deal with that in Peter's life back in chapter 2 of Galatians. Of course, to be a Christian is to be liberated from bondage to slavery to sin. It doesn't feel that way. I know that the pull of sin is so strong. But the fact of the matter is, if you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. And yet the temptations over and over again, Paul addresses this in Romans 6 through 8, the temptation is to always act as if we're still slaves to sin. This is the point, guys. Everyone's a slave until Christ sets them free. Everyone is a slave to something until Christ sets them free. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that is entirely by grace. It's because God has come after you. Consequently, you are free. Don't return to slavery in any way. He warns us in this passage of two destructive impacts that returning to slavery can have. First, he says, it'll kill your joy personally, and it'll destroy the gospel community that the gospel creates, that grace creates among people. Uh, first, personal or performance-based relationships kill personal joy. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, what then has become of your blessedness? That could actually be translated, where has all your joy gone? Or what has become of all your joy? Or what has happened to all your joy? Joy is the, let me rephrase this, Loss of joy is the canary in the coal mine that you're beginning to relate to God on the basis of your performance and not Christ's performance. They've lost their joy. Paul's like, there it is. You're no longer relating to God based on his love for you and his acceptance of you in Jesus. You're relating to God on the basis of your performance and you're striving to keep the law in order to be accepted by him. You've already been accepted by him. Where's your joy? If you're here this morning and you feel that absence of joy, the first place to start is to be pulling out the, you know, the carbon monoxide detector to figure out where's their legalism going on in my heart. Where is it that I'm basing my relationship with God on my performance and not on Christ's performance, on what I can accomplish and not on what Christ has accomplished? And then Paul would say, continue going back to that. Continue remembering that gospel truth that you might recapture and reclaim and enjoy once more the joy 
of your salvation. But performance-based relationships also destroy gospel culture. We get a little picture of what the gospel culture that they enjoyed was like when Paul was there. Paul says in verses 14, uh, 13 and 14, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Let me just say real quick, and I know don't have a lot of time, but the food will stay warm. Let me just say this real quick. Paul, do you realize what's happening here? This was a divine appointment for Paul. Galatia was not on his itinerary. He got sick. He had to stop there. He said, here I am in my sickness, my infirmity. I can't go on. I might as well preach the gospel while I'm here. It was a divine appointment. You and I have divine appointments that God brings onto our schedule every single day. Sometimes it's in the context of our own infirmity, our own illness and sickness. I remember hearing, I don't know if Barb Dicer's here, but I remember hearing about John in the hospital. John was the hound of heaven in the hospital. You know, he just, every chance he had, he was telling the nurses, the doctors, the patient care techs, the, you know, anyone who would come in, do you know Jesus? It was a divine appointment for John. God brings those kinds of divine appointments into our lives all the time. It was a divine appointment for Paul as well. Here's the thing. In, in Greco-Roman culture, there, there was a, a real... Um, uh, aversion isn't a strong enough word toward those who were sick or infirm or, or having any kind of problems. You know, they, they could have scorned him and shunned him and, and pushed him out. You know, they, they actually, kind of, it was common practice to actually spit toward or spit on someone who is sick as a way of warding off evil spirits, they thought. Right? Paul's there, he's sick, he's proclaiming this gospel. They're receiving his message and they're receiving the messenger Paul with joy. There's Paul's heart for them. There's the sense of their heart for him. They, they received the truth that he was speaking to them. And, and there was a gospel culture that was there and presumably continued on after Paul went. The Judaizers come in, and it's all about the Judaizers. It's all about them. Take a look again back at chapter 4, verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, etc. So, you know, it, they, they've gone from being a people who are, are, are for one another and ultimately for Jesus to having these false teachers come in and say, you need to be for us by obeying the law of Moses. It's actually going to create this separation at the Lord's Supper between those who are Gentiles and those who are Jews. I mean, everything that the cross accomplishes was being undone in terms of the community and fellowship that they enjoyed at that church. It was deadly. It was deadly. It always leads to loss, loss of joy, loss of fellowship. So let's turn third then to where Paul lands at the end of the passage. What is his expression of his greatest burden for them? It's that Christ be formed in them. Paul said in verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. What did he mean by that? Well, in part, he could have meant become as I am in relation to the law of God. I'm no longer a slave to it. I can, I can see that it's a, a means by which I can walk in the way that God is leading me, not to gain his favor, but because I have his favor. could mean that. Don't, don't look at the law in that way. Look at the law in the right way. I think 2 Corinthians 3.18 gives us a little picture of what may have really been going on in Paul's heart. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image 
from one degree of glory to another. He's saying to these Christians in Galatia, in verse 19 of chapter 4, I'm in agony as in childbirth until Christ be formed in you. Verse 12, become as I am. By God's grace, I am being transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. I am experiencing more of the freedom that the gospel calls us into. I'm experiencing more of the joy and the wonder of being loved by God in Christ simply because God is a God of love. Become like me. How do we do that? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 and 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul would say, fix your eyes on Jesus. Gaze at his face, which is a way of saying, know him. Love him. Believe the gospel and never avert your gaze from it. This is Paul's heart for the Galatians. It's the reason for his labor and his deepest concern that Christ be formed in the hearts of his readers. Kids, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad this is a family Sunday and you've made it through the whole sermon. Good job. Here's what I hope you'll remember from all this. This is your parents' heart for you. Their heart is that Christ be formed in you. Their heart is that you come to know Jesus and and know that you are loved by Jesus. Their hearts are not perfect, but that is their heart for you. Church, that's your pastor's heart for you, imperfectly, as you all know so well. Imperfectly, and yet, My heart for you, the hearts of the elders and the deacons and the growth group leaders and the Sunday school teachers and the ministry team leaders, our hearts are that Christ be formed in the hearts of the people here at Grace Church. All the one another passages of Scripture remind us that that's to be our our hearts for one another as well because the ultimate aim of those one another passages is growth into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And we all do that so imperfectly. But adults and children alike, remember, the heart of Christ for you in this is perfect. He will never fail to pursue you that the heart of Christ, his own heart, would be formed in you, that you would grow in the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. Christ. He found you. He's known you. For all eternity, he will love you. Don't turn to anything that will enslave you. You are free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder. We thank you for this message. We thank you for preserving this letter to the churches in Galatia for us to this very day. Lord, as we have studied Paul's heart for his readers, we pray that you would help us to remind remind us that this is your heart for each and every one of your own. Lord, I pray that for those of us who have found ourselves this morning in feeling as though we were slaves, either slaves to a performance-based view of our relationship with you or slaves to the opinions of other people or, or just living as though we were still in slavery to sin, Lord, would you help us to 
Fix our eyes upon you in the gospel and remember the freedom that we have in you and the hope that we enjoy of having our lives transformed into your very image and likeness. There is no greater thing that we could desire. Oh God, would you work to make that the desire of our hearts? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.